ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday, the 14th of December. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. Tens of thousands of people are without power and parts of far north Queensland are bracing for flooding as now ex-tropical cyclone Jasper makes its way inland. There's a major flood warning for the Daintree River and a flood warning for the Mosman River. Jasper crossed the coast yesterday as a Category 2 storm just south of the small community of Woodjil near Cape Tribulation north of Cairns, but it's weakened overnight to a tropical low. Gavin Coote reports. Like many in far north Queensland, Betty Hinton got very little sleep. I watched it go over the coast. Actually, I think I was under the very edge of the eye. She runs an ice cream factory about 11 kilometres north of the Daintree River and was surprised just how relentless the winds have been. The fact that it travelled so slowly was very trying. I've been in cyclones before, a much stronger cyclone than... Um, Jasper. And it wasn't so heart-wrenching, but this one just went on and on and on. And there just didn't seem to be any relief from it. And so for 14 hours, we were buffeted here. And then the heavy rain started. At first, it was just drizzle and then showers. And then late, late last night, The rain was tremendous. I'll have a quick look outside and see what I can see. It's gusting that I wouldn't be really comfortable going outside. Does the house look like it's sustained any damage at all? Oh, the house is fine. Yeah, my husband and I built the house. We said we would build it for a Cat 5. It's like a bunker. (laughs) While she's okay, she's worried about her neighbours. And I'm feeling for those people who are close to the river because although I'm not sure, just common sense tells me that with the amount of rain we've had, those people could be in trouble. At the Wonga Beach Caravan Park south of the Daintree River, manager Steve Matson was late last night surveying the damage. He's expecting to remain without power or road access for days. Uh, we've got power lines down across the road from us. Um, a coconut tree snapped in half and took out the took out the power line, so we've been without power. We're not expecting the power to be on anytime soon. Um, obviously, they have started in in your bigger bigger areas, being Port Douglas, Mossman, etc. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure of the road conditions, but I would imagine um, yeah that we'd we'd probably be cut off from um, Mossman, which is only 15 minutes down the road. I'm not sure how long, but uh, we, we, we have got a generator here that we can um, keep keep a couple of fridges going to, to, to keep, keep, keep food and, and whatnot. Yeah. Stephen Nutt is a Port Douglas-based photographer who lives right on the waterfront and is relieved the threat of a storm surge has subsided, though he believes locals took the warnings seriously. The constant wind... You know, it's it's a longer period of time, I feel, that we've had strong winds, 40-plus knots, than some of the other cyclones which haven't crossed over us, but they've been, you know, further up or down the coast. So I think for people that haven't experienced cyclones, maybe people that have just moved to this part of the world, this would be a bit of an eye-opener for them. While he's unsure what state the roads are in, Stephen Nutt is expecting Port Douglas to be cut off for some time. 
Port Douglas is very dependent on southern deliveries of food, petrol, everything. And every road into Port Douglas at the moment is shut down. So if a road doesn't get opened in the next 24 to 48 hours, people will be panicking because they won't be able to buy fresh milk and, you know, potentially then they'll all, they'll, you know, there'll be the panic buying and all of that. Photographer Stephen Nutt ending that report from Gavin Coote and Matt Bamford. Israel's foreign minister says his country will continue its war on Hamas with or without international support. Eli Cohen's comments come a day after Australia and 152 other nations back to United Nations resolution demanding a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The resolution is being welcomed by some members of Australia's Arab community, although they argue it's too little too late. Here's political reporter Chantelle Al-Khoury. Every morning, Sally Asford waits for updates like this from her family half a world away. Some are sheltering inside their local church in Gaza with no safe passage to leave and the situation is getting worse by the day. Some people are going to the bathroom together, going to the showers together because if something happens, it can happen to everyone together so no one's left behind. As Israel forges ahead with its air and ground offensive in Gaza, Sally Asford says Palestinians are losing hope. At the moment, there's no food, no water, no electricity. It's cold. Hygiene is at the worst level it could possibly be. They're trapped. Australia yesterday joined 152 other nations in voting for a non-binding UN resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire after abstaining from a similar vote in October. The Prime Minister also issued a statement with his counterparts in Canada and New Zealand calling for a sustainable ceasefire, something Sally Asford says is still too weak. If we could have stand up against America, against the UK, against the Zionist lobbies within Australia itself to say this is wrong, the human life suffering in Gaza is unacceptable. It was unacceptable two months ago. It could have been done two months ago. Liberal MPs and Israel's ambassador to Australia have criticised Australia's UN vote, leading Sally Asford to ask this. What kind of a human are you to be upset that people need to stop being tortured and killed for you to be happy? Mr Ambassador. Sydney man Kasem Shalabi's sister and her family are stuck in Janine, in the occupied West Bank, where Israeli forces have carried out deadly raids. They are scared. They can't move around freely as before. And because the settlers, sometimes at night, they come and smash windows. The situation is not uh, safe at all. He warns that Australian Arab communities will remember where Labor stood at the beginning of the conflict. They don't want to vote for Labor. They want to punish Labor Party. And he's calling for the government to provide more humanitarian aid and support for those coming to Australia on visas. The Australian government helped the Israeli in this fight by allowing them you know, to continue fighting and not to stop the war or calling for a ceasefire. And it has to be accountable for that. Support for a ceasefire, something Australia has backed, albeit almost 70 days into the war. Chantelle Alcori there. Tim Watts is the Assistant Minister for Foreign Affairs. He's recently been in Qatar and Egypt and is now in the Israeli city of Jerusalem before heading to the West Bank tomorrow. Tim Watts, you've met Israel's Foreign Minister Eli Cohen. What has he told you directly about Australia voting in favour of the UN resolution demanding a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza? 
Well, look, Sabra, I obviously won't go into uh, private discussions between ministers, but I can say that Israel is well aware of Australia's support for its right of self-defence and appreciative of that support. Uh, similarly, appreciative of uh, Australia's support for amendments at the United Nations to specify that this is a conflict that was initiated by Hamas and that Hamas is responsible for initiating this conflict. This Israel visit is the third leg of my visit to the Middle East. I've been in Qatar, Egypt, and now Israel. And the really consistent message that we've had is that you know, the status quo has been failing everyone. There's an imperative that all parties get back on track for a long-term uh, political resolution to this conflict. That resolution didn't name Hamas and it didn't mention the October the 7th attacks. Did Mr Cohen say anything to you about that? Well, look, as I say, I'm not going to go into uh, private discussions, but Australia's position is clear on the record. We thought that while the humanitarian situation is dire there and we want to see a return to the humanitarian pause that we saw recently, the seven-day pause that allowed for the release of 105 hostages and for much-needed humanitarian assistance to get into uh, Gaza. We did think that that resolution could have been improved by uh, specifying that this is a conflict initiated by Hamas. If it could have been improved, why did we back it then? Why did we not abstain or vote no? Well, we take every resolution on its merits and we think that the humanitarian situation is dire in Gaza. We thought that the uh, recent pause, the seven-day pause, was constructive and we think it's a useful step on the pathway to a sustainable um, and permanent ceasefire that we'd like the parties to step towards. We know that that can't be one-sided, though, and that we need to see Hamas uh, immediately and unconditionally releasing prisoners, stopping using civilian infrastructure uh, as, as to launch attacks and uh, using uh, civilians as human shields. Israel's ambassador to Australia has questioned how Australia could vote for this. Uh, in his words, he says this resolution emboldens Hamas, while some Arab Australians say that Australia's support for it is too little too late. What is your response? Well, we obviously would have preferred that the resolution also made reference to the October 7 attack perpetrated by Hamas on innocent civilians. Um, we supported amendments to that effect because uh, we believe that the resolution should have gone further um, by unequivocally condemning Hamas. Now, that said... Still, um, many people will be very confused by that. If you think the resolution could be improved and Australia voted for it, that will cause many people here to think, hang on, what's going on? Well, we take every uh, resolution on its merits, Sabra. Um, we welcomed the humanitarian pause agreed by the parties recently. Um, and this resolution was the world, uh, 152 countries coming together to argue for a continuation of those pauses, for those pauses to be resumed so that civilians can get the humanitarian aid that they desperately need. So that's why uh, we've supported that. And it's consistent with the position, I should say, that we have advocated since the start of this conflict. Is it, uh, we recognise Israel's right for self-defence, but the, the way that it exercised that right matters. Did the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister talk or take the Labor caucus by surprise with this decision? Uh, Sabra, no, I'm not going to go into internal party processes, but uh, the party is uh, fully united behind this position. Um, our position has been clear and consistent since the outset of this conflict. We've been arguing for humanitarian pauses to ensure that sustained, uh, consistent and safe humanitarian supplies can reach the people who need it since very early on in this conflict, um, and that resolution supports that. 
Liberal MP Julian Lisa says supporting this resolution is a tawdry political move by Labor to shore up seats like the Prime Minister's electorate of Graindler from the Greens. Another Liberal, Andrew Hastie, says a ceasefire would give Hamas time to regroup and that it's weak leadership from the Prime Minister. What's your response? Well, look, unlike the Liberal Party, we do not view this very serious international conflict through the prism of domestic uh, party political politics. Um, we've been clear that Hamas must be defeated and dismantled. Um, we've also been clear, though, that the price of that cannot be the continuous suffering of Palestinian civilians. You know, ultimately, what we all need to be doing is working towards a long-term, just and enduring peace. And we can't realise Israeli aspirations without also realising Palestinian aspirations. The only way to resolve this conflict is by getting them back on track to a political solution where Israelis and Palestinians can live side by side in peace and prosperity in internationally recognised borders. Tim Watts, thanks for talking to AM. Thank you, Sabra. And Tim Watts is the Assistant Minister for Foreign Affairs. Australian personnel who've been training Ukrainian military recruits will be welcomed home today as the federal government announces an expansion of the assistance mission. With the war against Russia approaching two years, the Albanese government's also under pressure to reopen its embassy in Kyiv, one of the few diplomatic posts that remains shut in the capital. Here's defence correspondent Andrew Green. In the southern English countryside, the task of preparing Ukraine's next cohort of defenders continues under the watchful eye of military instructors from a dozen nations, including Australia. Since January, the ADF has helped to train more than 1,200 Ukrainian volunteers under the UK-led program. Ukraine's ambassador to Australia is Vasil Maroznichenko. This is, you know, very kind of strong human connection which is being created you know, between the ADF and also Ukrainian. And uh, they go there through training, sometimes five, six weeks before they are sent out to, to the front lines. The ADF's contribution to the international military effort to support Ukraine's armed forces is known as Operation Kudu. This afternoon, the latest rotation of around 70 personnel to take part in the mission will be welcomed home to Darwin as the government announces an extension and expansion of the training mission. From 2024, the number of personnel in each rotation will grow to 90 under an almost $200 million package of support to Ukraine over the next two years. Ina Sufsan is a leading opposition figure in Ukraine's parliament and a former deputy minister. Any help is, is, is appreciated and training of the soldiers is of course an ongoing problem. We are constantly mobilising new and new people into the army because unfortunately uh, those who have been fighting uh, since February 24th are being injured or killed. While grateful for Australia's support since Russia's invasion began, she's among many in Ukraine who'd like to see this country now reopen its embassy in Kyiv. Given that uh, other diplomats are working, um, the ambassadors are working, actually even businesses, some of the international businesses are reopening uh, in Kyiv. So I do think that it is possible for other embassies to reopen, including an Australian one. And that would, of course, give uh, Australia a better understanding of the situation on the ground if you had uh, personnel directly here in Kyiv. 
Just last weekend, Foreign Minister Penny Wong announced career diplomat Paul Lehmann would soon become Australia's next ambassador to Ukraine, but won't be based in the country because of safety concerns. A DFAT spokesperson telling the ABC the situation in Ukraine is extremely complex and challenging. The safety and security of staff is paramount. In light of rigorous assessments, the embassy continues to operate from Warsaw. Andrew Green reporting. Facilities providing cosmetic surgery will now be required to meet a new set of standards intended to improve patient safety. Any service offering cosmetic surgery will have to abide by the rules, from small clinics conducting day procedures to large hospitals. Here's National Health reporter Elise Worthington. Charlotte Jerram was 19 when she first had cosmetic surgery. I just wanted to enhance and change the way that I looked. So at a very young age, I did decide to go under the knife and, yeah, have larger breasts. But in the following years, she experienced a range of medical issues. First, a rash broke out on her chest, and then she developed chronic fatigue, brain fog, insomnia, depression and anxiety. That's like the time of your life, right? You should feel the most energetic, the most healthy. Um, But my health was fast deteriorating. It's not well understood why implants can cause some people to develop a complex set of debilitating symptoms. But the new standards that come into force today are clear that patients should be fully informed of the possible risks. They also require facilities offering cosmetic surgery to ensure nothing about a patient's general health or psychological health makes them unsuitable for the procedure. Charlotte Jerram thinks those extra checks would have helped her decision-making. They probably would have discovered that I struggled a lot with body image and positivity. The introduction of the standards has been driven by recent media attention on risky cosmetic surgical practices, (laughs) including a joint investigation by the ABC, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, revealing poor hygiene standards, risks to patient safety and theatre staff laughing and dancing while performing a procedure. And this is a response to that, to all of the complaints in the media that we've heard about, um, to make sure that in the future, people who go for a cosmetic procedure uh, are not at risk of being harmed. Dr Liz Miles is the Clinical Director for Primary Care at the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality in Healthcare, which has produced the new rules. She says they'll be used by states and territories to develop licensing procedures for facilities where cosmetic surgery is performed. All cosmetic surgery will have to occur in a licensed facility, which will need to be accredited to these standards. Every patient will need a referral from an independent GP and there'll be a cooling off period before the procedure is done. Misleading advertising will not be allowed. Facilities will also have to use appropriate infection control standards, have the right equipment, employ suitably trained staff and provide adequate aftercare. Dr Gary Buckland is an independent plastic surgeon. They work hand in hand with the guidelines that have been released by APRA and the Medical Board of Australia. The Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons says it supports any measures to improve patient safety, but worries the new standards will duplicate the workload of facilities already accredited to the Commission's standards for other services they provide. Dr Buckland disagrees. For the majority of well-trained practitioners who work in accredited facilities, the vast majority of these standards are already being undertaken and are not a significant burden on their practices. Independent plastic surgeon Dr Gary Buckland ending that report from Elise Worthington and Mary Lloyd. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. 
Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. At the start of the Israel-Gaza war, the Israeli Prime Minister had firm backing from many nations, including Australia. But as the death toll rises, US President Joe Biden has warned Israel is losing that support. Today, Gaith Alamari from the Washington Institute on how the world's view is shifting and what that means for the war. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.